Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, August 3rd. Today we have an interview with Eric Gattenholm. He is the CEO of Selink. Do you want to give a brief explainer on what Selink is? Yeah, I'm excited for people to listen to this one. This isn't, I mean, it's a stock that is way out of our circle of confidence, but we got to learn a ton about an emerging industry in life sciences, and it is about bioconvergence and bioprinting. So this company has a lot of other subsidiaries and products, but it mainly converges around it's a four, 3D it's what, printing. Like a $4 billion of, dollar business? Yeah, so the market cap depends on the day is about a $4 billion market cap. They've been growing rapidly. And again, mm-hmm. we're not experts on this company, but it was very fun to talk to him. Um, yeah. Eric Gattenholm, yeah. It, again, it, you can tell it's outside of our circle of competence because we're having trouble describing it, but it's basically 3D printing of human tissues products that go along with that you know the ink the inputs stuff, for it the inputs and all that stuff he explains it we couldn't get to everything but he gave a great overview of the company um also a good sort of entrepreneurship story yeah it was great because he started this when he was pretty young uh, oh, yeah. i think he co-founded it but uh after that we're going to talk our show notes we've got some big ones this week i'm talking about square acquiring afterpay uh, and then I'll be talking about Trevor Milton as well. What do you have? Uh, I have Robinhood's successful IPO. There's been some things leaking out about that. We can talk about what their debut was, how it went. And then I have a fun little story uh, from a new book about Tesla and Apple. Great anecdote there. I think it'll be funny to go over that. That's not really a story. It's just a, a funny anecdote I thought anyone might have be fun to listen to okay and before we get to the interview we got to talk about our sponsors uh new recommendation alert seven investing the picks are out yeah which uh which advisors pick did you like the most oh i don't know i haven't read them all thoroughly yet some of them are not in our you know avenues but i'll say they max's pick it was in biotech uh, like, you know, that's what it says. We're not spoiling anything there. You kind of get that with the preview. But the way he was describing it, it sounded like a very compelling opportunity for anyone that's interested in the biotech industry. So that one I'm going to be interested to dig into. It's not necessarily for me to buy something like that, but all his reports can really help someone understand the industry yeah. more and more and try to expand that circle of competence. Okay. I liked Honor Bonds. I won't get that into it, but the business sounded compelling. Uh, so go ahead, use our code CCM. You get $10 off for your seven investing subscription. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, today we are welcomed by Eric Gattenholm. He is the CEO and founder of Selink, uh, a company that is unique. It's something that we haven't taken a deep look at. We actually were turned on to the idea by an old friend of the show. Uh, but I'll let you kind of introduce yourself. Why don't you give us sort of your background, your career, and then how did you even begin to start Selink? Great. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure to uh, 
talk to you. And I, I think what you guys are doing is, is really cool. And, and uh, it's great to uh, highlight some of the work that, that our colleagues here at, at Selling are, are working on. So um, uh, thanks for, thanks for having me really. Um, Selling was, was started from, from really the idea that uh, we see a future where, where we can create and essentially at that time it was just printing, but printing organs and tissues that could use for um, implantation purposes, for reconstruction of, of, of tissues for um, obviously repair and defects and damages in humans, but also for the development of drugs and, and, and products. So, so we started the company with the idea that in the future, we will be able to print organs that can be used for uh, transplantation purposes. And, and that was kind of the, the, the whole uh, developing idea uh, at a time when the entire industry started to essentially come about. So I would say uh, from, a, from a timing perspective, we did a lot of things right uh, by starting the company in 2016. Wow. Right, right. I didn't know it was that young. So uh, how old were you when you started it? I was 25. Wow. Okay. So it's been so, quite a, it's been quite the ride. Uh, what are some of the pivotal moments? You mentioned that the timing was good. What are some of the pivotal moments either from like an industry perspective or things that selling has decided to do that has got the company to where it is today? It's a very good question. And, and, and I think, you know, from, from our, story as a company, it all started essentially with a quite simple, if I, if I can say simple, it's, it's a very complex industry and a complex um, uh, subject really, this bioprinting or, or tissue engineering industry. But it essentially started with, we had a material that could be used for printing of tissues. So this material was a biomaterial innovation from a lot of researchers and, and universities and and this material has the capability of growing human cells in it, right? So it's a very cell-friendly material. And actually, it's so cell-friendly that, that your, your human cells, they, they act like they would be inside of the human body. So it creates a so-called in vitro environment um, uh, for, for, for culturing these cells. But from our understanding when we started the company was essentially that this industry is growing very rapidly. We saw that in the future, there's going to be a lot of companies or technologies that enable uh, really tissue engineering or, or production of organs, both for transplantation purposes, but also for other purposes, like developing a new cosmetic product. You could print a piece of skin, and then you could test that cosmetic product on that skin instead of using animals. So we saw a lot of different verticals essentially being being extended and happening at the same time. And our idea was, okay, so how do we provide a technology or products that can cater to all of these different verticals that are happening? And the first product was then an ink, a material, this, this very special material, which is so-called a bio ink, because it's, a, it's an ink that you put inside of a 3D printer. And that 3D printer, instead of printing a plastic component, it essentially prints a human tissue. So you combine this ink with human cells and then the printer just builds that structure. If it's a square or if it looks like an ear or whatever the scientist wants to print. But in terms of kind of pivotal moments, I would say, you know, the development of the company has been very incremental. So we started with the ink and the first thing we saw was, okay, the printers on the markets, on the market, they're too expensive and they're too complicated to work with. Scientists, they, they wanted to buy our ink, but they didn't have printers. 
And, and the ones who had printers, they said, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's too complicated with my printer. I don't know how to work it. Can you guys come to our lab? So, so me and my co-founder, Hector, um, we would spend a lot of time going to the customer sites and, and, and learning what the customer was doing, try to understand their issue and challenges. And the challenge was mainly with the hardware. The printers were too expensive and complicated. So we decided to develop a very cost-effective, actually the first most cost-effective bioprint in, in the world, bringing the prices down from about $300,000 for these bioprinters down to $5,000. And that really expanded the market because all of a sudden, bioprinting became a mass market product. It wasn't before. It was only these very highly prestigious universities like Harvard, MIT, that could afford bioprinters. But our idea was that this technology will change the world. It belongs in the hands of everyone. So everybody should afford to be able to do bioprinting. So, so that was kind of the first incremental thing, right? We went from the ink, we went to the printer. And then from the printer, we started adding a lot of other technologies that are somewhat cost-effective for the masses. And so you mentioned one of those use cases being like cosmetics. Where are the most of your are most of your customers sort of businesses, or is it more like labs, uh, hospitals? What kind of customers mm-hmm. do you guys have? Yeah. So so the customer base has has obviously. Uh, varied over the last couple of years. So we started with the, with the academic customers, right? The scientists and the, and, and the researchers at universities all around the world. So, so we have our, our, our bioprinters and inks now in, in more than 65 countries around the world. And, and many of these customers, yes, they are academic, um, academic users. So bioengineering laboratories, chemical engineering labs, biology labs, et cetera, et cetera. And these are kind of the the disruptors of the industry, or the or the the innovators, right? These are the university professors who are going to want to develop new treatments that will come into play in the next two three decades. These are very important customers. But over the last two three years, I made a commitment to the company that we will strengthen our foothold into pharmaceutical and cosmetic uh, customers. So, so in the last two, three years, we've been working very heavily with expanding that customer base. And today, more than half of our customers are either pharma or biotech companies. So, so we've done a, a massive transition. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because I wanted to position the company more towards uh, supplying products and technologies that can actually make an impact today. And that's where, that's where really, you know, by printing these tissues for cosmetic companies, for instance, or printing them for pharma companies, those tissues can then be used to develop a new drug and that drug will go into patients in a couple of years. Okay. And so, so you guys sell the initial printers. It sounds like you're kind of the low cost provider there. And then is the bio ink, is that more of like a recurring? uh, That's right. So it's a razor razor blade model, right? So you buy the printer for about $5,000. So that's the starting point for the printers. We have printers also on the very advanced range that costs about 1.2 million dollars so so we've become over over the years become the absolute global leaders in bioprinting by being able to provide essentially the entire scope right so we have for the beginners we have for the more advanced users uh we have for the absolute cutting edge um uh, system users and then of course the recurring base is both consumables so cartridges and nozzles and 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 substrates and things like that and then, of course, the most important one, the bio inks. 
Because the bio ink, that's really where the secret sauce is. Because if you want to print a human liver or, or a piece of skin, you need to use different inks for different tissues. So a liver, a liver cell requires a very different environment than what a, than a skin cell would require. And for that reason, the inks, they, they differ. Okay, that makes sense. And do you guys, it sounds like you're focused really heavily on this one vertical, but have, do you guys have any other products? Because I know you've made some acquisitions over the last few years. Yeah. Is there anything else besides this uh, printer and ink, ink model? Good good question. So so about, about a year and a half ago, we started broadening ourselves a little bit because we saw that uh, there's a lot of, you know, so, so we're, we're very customer driven. And, and I would say we're customer obsessed in that sense. Um, and in this industry, it's it's quite uncommon. In the consumers industry, it's very common to be very customer obsessed. But but in life sciences, it, it hasn't really been uh, something that life science companies have capitalized on. But we see ourselves as completely customer obsessed, and and we do what our customers ask us to do, um, and they essentially guide us forward. So a lot of our strategy is based on what our customers are asking for in terms of products and and and, and future needs. So when we started with the bioprinters and the inks. Hector, my co-founder, myself, we would go out to these laboratories and install these printers. So we would, you know, we would do 200, 250 travel days a year. We would go to all these labs and visit these customers. Amazing, cool laboratories. They would tell us, oh, we're using your printer for printing cartilage. And then, you know, we're uh, we're looking to develop these new devices that can go into humans in, in, in the next coming decades. And, and you know, we're trying to we're trying to treat these diseases. So we're using, you know, your printer and ink to print this liver. And then we're testing this new medicine and it's so cool. But, you know, and, and then we would, we would talk to these customers and they would tell us, you know, their, their, uh, their stories. And then they would always tell us, you know, the next step of the workflow or uh, the next step in their needs from, from, from a product perspective. So they would say, first we print the tissue and then we want to dispense different medicines. And we're saying, oh, okay, so how do you dispense the medicines? Oh, we do that by hand. Doesn't that take a lot of time? Yeah, but, you know, we, we can't really find a cost-effective or a good solution for doing that with a robot or a system. So, you know, going to enough customers, we would start developing an idea. Hey, a lot of these users, they need a liquid handling robot or an automation system that can dispense a lot of small droplets, essentially, of medicine onto these printed tissues. So then we said, why don't we just develop a, a very simple liquid handling robot that can do that? And, and at that time, you know, the company was, I think we were 30 people. So we said, our resources are quite stretched. So we found a small German company uh, in Stuttgart called the Spendex, and we acquired them. So that was the first acquisition in 2018. And they had developed this really, really cool, small benchtop, cost-effective liquid handling robot that would dispense very, very tiny droplets. And that essentially opened up an entire new market for us, liquid handling, which was, it, we had zero market share in liquid handling before that before that acquisition. So, so that opened up a, a new area. And, and from that area, we did the same thing, right? So we went to these customers, we sold them these types of liquid handling robots, we offered them together with our printers. And then the customer would say, oh, you know, Microscopy would be a very, very interesting addition to this, you know, a, a better microscope so that I can look at these cells or look at these tissues under a microscope in a much simpler way. So we went into that and we developed that product, et cetera, et cetera. And then 
eventually we built this idea that our business is not in, in just bioprinting. Our business is in bioconvergence. And bioconvergence is essentially by taking a lot of these different technologies like robotics um, or engineering and, and hardware technologies and combining it with biology, we can answer much bigger questions. So, so that's kind of how the company has pivoted over the last couple of years. And, and that now enables us to provide customers with a more holistic product portfolio. Um, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So since it's such an early, you're, you're one of the companies that's trying to build out this industry. You're kind of trying to push it forward, right? The, that's right. So the, the problem you, these, your customers are finding is that the equipment they had wasn't specifically for uh, the, uh, I don't know the proper terms, the, the bioprinting use case. So yeah. they need this specific equipment that can help them with that. I know that's not very a scientific answer, but that, that's kind of what you've been seeing over the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've been seeing a lot of, a lot of additional uh, technology that, that these, these customers needed to enable them to print the tissues. Right. So if we take, if we take a, 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 an example from, from the car industry, right? So you look at Tesla, right? So say that Tesla was good at, say the storage, the batteries, right? So they developed a really good battery and then they started selling these batteries. And then and then the customer would say, oh, you know what? It would, it would be great if, if the battery also came with four wheels, right? And then, and then you started building a car around it. And and I, I think what, what, what we're doing here is that we're exploring or we're seeing a much greater uh, potential for the products and technologies that we're offering by combining these different areas. And we're essentially paving the way for the next decades of, of tissue engineering or regenerative medicine um, industry to come. And that's what's so exciting because no other company has essentially taken that position in the past. They've been kind of working in silos. And, and so that's, so you've had the, for instance, the printer makers, they were just making printers and they were making really good printers but they were quite expensive. But, you know, if anybody talked to them and said, hey, why haven't you thought of, you know, making the ink? Oh, we're not ink makers. You know, we're, we're, we don't know material. We don't know, uh, we don't know cells. We just know the hardware really well. So, so what we learned very well to do was to combine these types of companies in an environment where we can then provide these to end users or to the researchers for them to answer the bigger questions. So, so we're, we're, a, we're, we're kind of the visionaries who see what products go well together. And this is based on essentially only customer feedback. Are you still doing a lot of those travel days where you go out and figure out sort of what they're looking for? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my time is spent a lot with customers, listening to customers and users. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's critical for me to, to stay sane because, you know, one of the kind of those early fears that I had as, as an entrepreneur is that I will lose sight of the customer or the user. And, and when we do that, we become like a science company. And right. that's scary because science companies are, can sometimes be driven by internal motivation or ideas of what the customer might want, but it might be very far away from what the customer actually wants. And so when you find something where one of your customers says like, we would love to have this product or this is sort of a bottleneck or a complication for us is do you prefer to develop that in-house or 
acquire it like through the German use case that you talked about earlier, um, what are some of the benefits to each strategy? Yeah, I, I think we we would prefer to develop it ourselves in-house because we could control the process better. I mean, we we know uh, we have we have excellent engineers all around the world. Uh, we have great ways of developing products through you know making them very user friendly, making them somewhat cost effective, building a business model around them. So there's always like a consumable aspect and an instrument aspect or if it's a reagent and, and, and system or whatever it may be, but as long as the business model needs to stay the same. But sometimes we're just so swarmed um, that it, the solution might already be out there. And it might be a company that that uh, is available or is looking for for a more strategic way forward. And at that point, we, we go with the acquisition way. And when we acquire companies, uh, you know, we have a quite, quite simple formula. I mean, we, we look at companies from three perspectives. Obviously, the product has to fit what the customer is asking for, but but taking in, in consideration that it does, uh, the first thing is that the, the company has to have revenues, right? So the company has to have some source of revenue from these types of products because we don't want to buy essentially technology companies that haven't proven their commercial viability yet. I think that's quite dangerous or it could be potentially dangerous in, in these very, very complicated fields of science. Number two is that the company needs to be at some kind of break-even point, either make money or be at a break-even because we don't want to be weighed down by their by, by their by their PL. But we also want to make sure that they have an understanding of how to manage their business and their company. And it's a viable one. And the third, third criteria is that they need to have a somewhat of a proven business model. So if they're they're offering a razor, razor blade mo- razor, razor blade model, they need to have proven that. Right, so that's obviously also coming into the first question of revenues, or the second question of profitability. Um, so, so, so upon these three criteria, we can engage and 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 see if we can make uh, you know get a deal. And do you, I guess, like how do you find companies like the one you talked about earlier? Is it like you've heard of them before, or are you just going out there looking for like who builds this already? Quick Google search. Yeah. <laughs> Google. I, that was uh, most of them are Google searches. Interesting. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> what about, I mean, it, maybe not Google search, but but you know, it's it, some. It, Dispendix was a Google search. Um, uh, Citina was at a conference. You know, many of these are, are either at conferences, customer sites, or Google searches. All right. All right. And then what? So this industry, you know, the talent, like the scientists themselves they're pretty highly sought after. How do you attract them and how do you retain them? Because, you know, a lot of people, or I guess the big concern people have with like an M&A strategy is keeping a cohesive framework, keeping people around because, you know, everyone in the back of their mind is like, all right, if we, as an investor, you're like, all right, if they're buying this company, what's going to keep them from not, you know, jumping ship two, three years down the line? Yeah. And, that, and, and I guess that's, that is the scary point for, for all acquisition projects, right? So something important for us when, when we acquire companies is that we want to maintain the businesses as much as possible, kind of as, as, as is, right? So we want to keep management, we want to keep CEOs, we want to keep all the team members. And we approach acquisitions from the perspective of that we have something to offer together, right? So there is a there is something, a, a, a uh, combined offering that we will provide to customers with the 
kind of bioconvergence workflow of products. But then also they have their ongoing and current business that they have to continue to cater to. And, and I think that, you know, from that perspective, it's important that the CEOs understand that they are absolutely critical for, for our continued success. So we will, of course, do as, you know, as much as we possibly can to make sure that these management teams and leaders of these organizations feel 100% comfortable coming on board. And we make that somewhat of a requirement during the acquisition process. But it's a very it's it's a sensitive walk because you know you can't force people to do something. Obviously, you, I mean you can have different contractual arrangements that make sure that that management teams and things stay on board. But we want people to be very passionate about what they're doing. So we're trying to create an environment within this this group of companies that essentially promotes excellence and going above and beyond for customers because our purpose is to really uh, create a better world through these medical medical innovations and, and scientific breakthroughs. And if you're a lead, in a leadership position in, in, a, in an entity that's, entity that's being acquired and you're, you know, you're drawn to this and you're passionate about the business that you're providing, that you're going to love being part of this journey. You're going to find this exhilarating to be part of this. If not, well, then you're, then you might not be the right person moving forward anyway. But I can tell you from all the acquisitions we've done, we've never replaced any management. We just don't do. I, I, I love the management teams and the CEOs that are part of this group. I think they are, they are my biggest heroes. Nice. Do you have anything else before we take oh, a break, Ryan? Or? Yeah, I have a lot more questions, but let's hit a break first, and then we'll, uh, we'll see you guys back on the back half. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. Welcome back in. I'm going to kick things off. With, I have a question on top of mind. So when, when there's when you guys already have a customer, I'm, I'm trying to think of it from the customer side. Do they prefer to have one manufacturer and supplier? Is there any advantage to having it all come from the same place? Like all these different parts that you're talking about? That's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it becomes kind of the question of the consolidation strategy. And I, I think from our perspective, we've, we've been quite adamant about keeping things decentralized because we, we believe that, you know, um, these companies that we acquire that join us in the group, uh, they are experts at what they're doing. And, and if I, I feel like it's quite risky to go to a company that's been around for 15 or 20 years and say, I know how to make your product better. So I'm going to put it inside of a centralized manufacturing system that will handle all of your logistics and production. So from that perspective, I try to keep things as decentralized as possible. Will it, you know, make it easier for, for customers to buy it from one source. 
I, it could be. I mean, that we're working quite heavily in terms of finding synergies between the sales forces and finding synergies between the different you know, sales departments and, and, and purchasing departments at the customer sites to make sure that you know, maybe they get one invoice or maybe they can get you know, uh, one customer-facing representative and, and making sure that they get the best possible care. But, but um, we, we try to stick to this decentralized strategy as much as possible. Right. And then back to the product side, you might not, you know, if there's anything that you guys are working on that you can't share, you know, obviously don't, you don't want to share that, but what are some applications out there for selling products that might be under the radar that someone just a generalist like ourselves might not be thinking about? That's, that's a, uh, uh, that's a great question. A good example, obviously, I mean, it's always this, um, the, the creating tissues outside of the body, you know, we did an acquisition in uh, in March this year. Um, it was a company called Matic. Matic is it's a it's a Boston-based uh, tissue engineering company, and you know over the last 20, 30 years, they've been supplying you know the chemicals industry, uh, the cosmetics industry, and a few other industries with these human tissues, literally squares of skin that are then being used for for product development so so if you want to for instance understand if an adhesive you know a glue that you you put on a post-it note or whatever product you want you want to create if that could hurt your eyes or could hurt your skin you obviously don't test that on a human right because that's quite unethical and you don't test it on animals because that's unethical as well so what do you do well you have to test it somehow well, you can use these 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 created human pieces of skin, and then you put this adhesive on this skin, and then you and then you essentially evaluate how that skin reacts. And this company's been been making this for for 20, 30 years. And it's just it just baffles me how amazing it is that that all of these chemicals and products and 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 creams and cosmetics that are being used out around the world have been tested now on on a essentially in a, a lab created human part right it's amazing yeah that's i mean that's that is yeah thinking about it that is that is crazy what so that brings up another point though what you know you have a lot of the core customers within like your research departments you know those seem like steady customers but at least from our view, it seems like there's a lot of hurdles to get to the commercial aspects of these things. What kind of barriers, or not maybe not barriers, but what kind of hurdles do you guys have to jump over to get to the commercialization of a lot of, of, a lot of these products you guys offer? It's uh, actually not too big of hurdles. I mean, the okay. products that we offer, so, so, so many of these products that we offer, they're on the research side of things, right? So it, we're not in, in the human body yet. So, so we haven't, you know, we don't print devices that go into patients. That's mostly our customer's job. So we try to stay on the technology provider side of things. So it's kind of it's kind of you know Tesla sells a car and then to to a taxi firm and that taxi firm uses that car to provide a service or or a product. So so we're trying to really be the technology provider that enables our customers to do the things that they want to do with their business. So so barriers of, of entry for us is, is is typically quite quite low. Okay, that makes sense. All right, I think that clears things up. If you're acquiring 
another company, so like Matech, for example, what's kind of your sales pitch or in this case, buying pitch? Like why should they join selling or why do they feel inclined to? Yes. So, so as a bioconvergence company, you know, our, our duty and responsibility on this world is to, is to create a better world uh, of medicine, right? To create products that are more personalized, create new treatments that, that can actually heal patients and not just heal symptoms. And, and I think that as a seller or as a selling company, you, you, all of a sudden you see yourself in a position where you're a, a missing puzzle piece and you can fit this bigger puzzle and you become part of something much greater. So first of all, of course, it, it de-risks your business a little bit, right? Now you're part of something much greater that is, that is growing extremely rapidly, that is very hungry for global expansion and growth, and that has muscles and funds to, to take your business to the next level. And again, it kind of comes back to that, that great question you guys had in terms of the people. I think that's a really important one because companies are all about people. People build good companies and products. So, so if the people are enthusiastic about being part of something greater and being part of a growth journey, then they will love this and they will sell their company to us. And we will love to work with them for, for a long period of time. If that's not their thing, if their thing is to exit, those things become quite obvious, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like the questions during the DD, or if you're if you're if you're evaluating a business for sale, and, and all the the sellers talk about are are their personal compensation, you know, when 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 they leave the business, you know, how much extra bonus can they get out after the transaction and things like that. It's not it's not as enticing for us to to continue it, right? What we want to understand is how can we together you know, create a much better and bigger company. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah. The, the red flags that you can see, yeah. you're kind of looking for those. Uh, and that'll say like, all right, this is not someone we'd want to partner with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess I'm just, uh, so the people that you've acquired so far, even though it may have came from a Google search, they kind of, they're enthusiastic to kind of be a part of a more holistic approach to this uh, bioconvergence space. They are, they are, they definitely are. And they see the big picture how, and they see kind of how they fit into that uh, bigger picture and can provide both the group with more technologies and, and products for the portfolio, but also their users. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's as a, so, for instance, take this, take this example. As a small business of, say, 30 employees, right, you offer your product and you're competing with companies with 500 employees. You know, for, for, from a customer perspective, customers try to buy from companies that are bigger because it's, it's typically safer, right? It's, it's probably more customers that buy from them. So, so you have this, uh, you're at least pictured as being a little bit of a riskier when you're smaller, right? you're still growing and up, come, up and coming and, and you haven't really proven your technology yet. So as, as a small company of say 30 people, you're always fighting with larger companies. But now all of a sudden when you're part of the group, well, now you're a thousand people company. So even though the just your company is still 30 people and growing, you're still part of a thousand people unit. And that means that when you're pitching to your customer, all of a sudden you've, you know, you've become essentially reinvented as as a again as a part of something bigger 
And that's really attractive for it for both the customer perspective, which is now buying products from a much bigger player that is much safer. It's going to be around tomorrow. It's going to be um, continuously growing and it's going to keep these customers happy. Uh, but these customers might also find other products and services from the group now that, that they see fit into their uh, to their needs. Okay. I have one more on products. Um, sure. Maybe a tough one to answer, but, and you already talked about the, uh, you know, the testing on the, uh, I guess I'd call it artificial tissue. What is something yep. that is an exciting application that, you know, a selling product is either, or sorry, a selling customer maybe is doing now, or maybe in the near future, something that is coming down the line. Very good question. Uh, there is a, um, uh, so, so, so a lot of cool things that, that some of our customers are working on, if, if, if not on the kind of cosmetic or tissue engineering side, looking more on the liquid handling side of things, you know, biosensors. Biosensors is becoming an, a more increasingly important thing for, for, for a lot of different industries. So wearables, for instance, so being able to wear a sensor on your skin that can not only read, for instance, your, your, your heartbeat, but, you know, read your perspiration. It can read uh, different things from your sweat. It can be a constant monitoring of, of how your body's reacting to things as you're eating, as you're sleeping, as you're walking. And, and you know, body liquids are great ways for, for us to monitor human health and, and essentially how to continue our daily lives. And that's an area that hasn't really been explored as strongly as, as, uh, as I think it will be in the next coming years. We see a lot of products and technologies are being developed for it. Uh, and we're catering to that industry essentially by being able to uh, develop and help these companies produce these different sensors. So, so biosensors is definitely a really hot area that I think is going to be, I think it will be exploding over the next coming coming years. Uh, you've seen a little bit of that from, from COVID when, when you're trying to uh, develop different tests that are based on on either saliva or it's based on on some of them are blood based, some of them are, are urine based, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but analyzing body liquids is going to be increasingly important and doing that real time. Okay. From a more broader business standpoint, let's say in a perfect world, five to 10 years down the road, where is Selink then? Five to 10 years down the road, Selink is going to be, um, you know, I, th I think Selink will be of the size, I, I want it to be at least, you know, five, five to 10,000 people, you know, a, a, a very large company with, with uh, uh, significant impact in the, in the health industry by providing essentially products to, to the four, the four main segments that we're offering today. So bioprinting, or again, tissue, tissue engineering, um, the second one is, is genomics or multiomics, so being able to analyze the genome and, and, and again, uh, much on the, on the personalized health side of things. Um, cell line development or biopharmaceutical manufacturing. And lastly, diagnostics. And again, in diagnostics, you come anywhere from lateral flow, these 15-minute these quick tests to, to biosensors. So I think a company that really caters in and provides workflows to customers that, that enables them to do more with the data they're already collecting from, from patients and science. 
Okay, we have one more question. Let's try. Uh, you have another one? Yeah, I guess wrap-up questions. Uh, I've, I've heard this one asked before, so I kind of wanted to ask it as well. As a CEO, what do you think you do well, and then what do you think you could do better? Very good question. Uh, it's, it's important to reflect on these things. If, if I can start with what, what I think I do well is I, uh, I think I'm very commercially oriented around our customers. And I think, you know, this customer obsession is something that I promote very strongly within the organization. Um, I, I, I tend to, and I like to be the voice of the customer internally. So typically when we're trying to develop new products, always try to take the perspective of saying, okay, well, have we talked to the customer? What is the customer actually saying about this? Is this user-friendly enough? Let's go out, let's try it, right? Let's try it with the customers and users. So really bringing that voice of customer internally and promoting through strong teamwork uh, to, to really take that, that customer interaction and input into consideration. What I could do better uh, is, is obviously, you know, th there are a lot of improvements. There are a lot of improvements that I can do. Um, I think I'm learning in terms of how to mature as, as a public corporation leader. Uh, I think that's an area that that uh, I have. I don't have as much experience, obviously, as, as many of the other public uh, company CEOs, but it's it's an area that that I think I need to learn more from in terms of talking to investors, talking to to funds, talking to the public market, positioning the company more as a as a public company rather than maybe a a high growth startup. But I think that's a transition phase, right? So so as as we're transitioning now from just being a essentially a three people company five years ago to now being a thousand people company, um, we have to be able to transition and, and that involves personal development. So I think that's, that's something I could definitely work on. All right. Now we're going to wrap things up with the classic. Uh, how, what advice do you have for anyone that's looking to start a business? That's, that's a great question. And, and I, I, uh, I, I, you know, from from starting this company, one of the most important things that we did right was that we sold the idea before we had the product. And I know that's a controversial question because I know a lot of entrepreneurs are very, very careful in terms of don't oversell, don't, you know, don't promise things that you can't deliver on. There is a, you know, there could be disasters coming from that. But we still went on and we did it from the beginning. We we sold the ideas of the products and the knowledge that we were developing so that we can very, very early on understand the commercial viability of what we're about to build. So for instance, the BioInc, we would go to customers before the product existed and we would pitch to them and say, hey, we're developing a BioInc that will work in this way, right? It's going to have these properties or specifications. Would you be interested in buying? Would you be one of our beta users? And they loved it. I mean, most of these customers were, were all over this and said, as soon as you have a product ready, send it to us. We'd love to pay for it uh, and would love to try it for you. A lot of entrepreneurs need to learn from, from quite early days, right? Dare to sell. Dare to sell your product and your idea very early on. Don't be afraid that somebody's going to steal it. Honestly, it's, it's, that's, that's a very big scare for a lot of entrepreneurs. They think that if they share their idea with someone, if they try to sell something, you know, these people will steal that idea. Yeah, stealth mode, right? Isn't that the, the stealth? I, ah, you know, when I see these stealth mode startups, it's, it scares me because it's like, 
how are they going to get out there? I mean, the power and the aggressive posture that you need to have to build a massive global company is unbelievable. You have to be selling your idea 24-7. There is no stealth mode. Okay. All right, that's a great way to wrap up. Yeah, I guess uh, for anyone that's listening that wants to find you, what's the best place? Twitter? Or? Twitter, Instagram, uh, email, you know, eg at selling.com. Shoot me an email. My, you know, my cell phone number is still out there. I still get calls from everybody. You know, I used to have my cell phone number as the office number. So we're just transitioning from that now. So, I, you know, I get calls from everybody. But, you know, uh, yeah, anywhere. Twitter, LinkedIn, add me on LinkedIn. Perfect. 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 All right. Thank you for your time. Thanks for your time, guys. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Thanks again to Eric Gattenholm for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you, but we are going to get to our stories for the week. And the first one, this one kind of grabbed the headlines for the whole week, fintech... uh, I, I would say maybe this is the merger of the year. Biggest merger in... Or acquisition. I mean, outside of... Yeah, I mean, because Visa acquiring Plaid or Plaid, whatever you, however you say it, was a huge merger last year. I guess they got nixed. But this is six, seven times as big. So why don't you talk about it? Yeah, so Square is set to acquire Afterpay. This was announced Sunday night, the same time that they released their... Square released their second quarter earnings, which is, I mean... A Sunday night earnings release. I, I don't. I've never I seen don't, that before. I don't envy. Uh, well, I do. What I do like about Square is that they don't go in. They don't follow like the uh, the format of oh, we got to release right after the close. It's got to be a certain format. We got to do the conference call exactly like this. They don't do that. But I think uh, it may have ruined some relaxing Sunday evenings for some Square shareholders. Yeah. Matt, all those guys out there. Um, I think you know. <laughs> you know, I don't envy you last night having to go over this report. Probably a little stressful, but. Exciting. Yeah, and so they announced, uh, I guess they paired that earnings release with the announcement that they have entered into a scheme implementation deed. That's a great name. That's what they call it. uh, (laughs) That's a good name. And that it's stating that Square would acquire all of Afterpay shares in exchange for 0.375 shares of Square. So uh, you're getting, if you're an Afterpay shareholder, you're going to get 0.375 uh, shares of Square for each and one you own. Seeing the stock up 10% today probably was, well, is that good? That's, I hate doing this mental math in my head. That would be pretty good for Afterpay shareholders. Although it's not going to close for a long time. But Yeah, it's kind of hard to think. Sometimes the all stock deals are a little confusing, but you got to write yeah, it down. <laughs> Apparently the market liked it because it's up 10% on the news, or maybe it's on earnings. It could be either one. It could be, but, yeah, true, true. true. Uh, this also, so this values the deal at $29 billion. So that's how much they're paying for Afterpay. And it's roughly, we'll get into it a little bit, but it's 42 times their last 12 month sales, obviously a hefty premium. And, um, and as Square's stock goes up, the acquisition price gets higher. Right. Uh, and then Square says, 
they had a whole deck on the i guess the synergies if you will and so they said this should enhance both their seller and cash app ecosystem they said they can cross sell a lot of the square merchant solutions to afterpay's merchants that have already signed on or use afterpay and so forth and then cash app users will be able to manage their afterpay repayments so if you're not familiar with afterpay it's just a buy now pay later solution it's like the alternative to credit cards for younger generations, I guess is a good way to describe it. Um, so you can start to manage those uh, repayments directly from the app, and then you can also shop from within the Cash App now. So if you're familiar with the Afterpay app or the website, they have connections to every merchant that accepts Afterpay. And they're so focused on fashion and apparel, so it's kind of like focused yeah. on doing that. It's a bit like, I guess you could call it mobile commerce. Uh, they and. That's apparently a big differentiator between them and a lot of buy now, other buy now, pay later providers is the leads, or the, they call it the merchant lead gen, uh, which I, is viable. And then uh, they also believe they can easily grow the afterpay customer base by just granting them access to the 70 million annual transacting customers on the Cash App. Obviously, there's areas you can cross sell in there. And if you go look at the layout that they're thinking of on the slide deck it's pretty interesting because oh, it's can a kinda, beautiful beautiful slide decks you can pair this with boost pretty well um but this was a 31 percent premium to afterpay's market price i believe some people had it at 20 percent, but uh it depends on where it closed where you're referencing right and so anyway this uh, 42 times sales they're growing those sales at 92 percent year over year i guess the questions here are do you buy the synergies that they're touting sure yeah, yeah, I definitely buy it. No one, I don't think anyone can question that it fits. You have to ask though: Is it worth diluting by thirty billion, or possibly higher, or lower, depending on where the stock goes, for something that PayPal built themselves? Do, is it worth it? Maybe that's kind of the big question. Yeah, well, ask. Is, you're getting the existing customers, but if you did buy now, pay later through the Cash App, wouldn't you get those too? already right am i am i wrong thinking that i think we don't give enough credit to what afterpay has built because i mean cash app has a history of building everything themselves you know what i mean mm, yeah i guess the that's stocks right. that's right the bitcoin transacting the boost all that stuff it's kind of been their ideas i guess if you will well title <laughs> well yeah i guess i don't know what the hell they're doing with that but um so I don't know. I mean, obviously, they couldn't. There was a reason they chose Afterpay instead of just going and creating their own BNPL or, or yeah, buy now pay well, later solution. Maybe it's that lead gen. Maybe it's the existing relationships they have with merchants. Yeah, we did a show on Afterpay a few months ago, and I came away impressed because going in, you think, all right, this is just a commodity product, pretty easy to replicate. There's That's why there's so many people doing it, why PayPal's been able to do it pretty easily, and why almost every other company is going to be able to replicate it. But the reason it seemed like Afterpay one is because of the go-to-market strategy. And I think we compared it a bit to Square's Cash App strategy where they, again, the peer-to-peer -peer payment stuff, just sending money to people, that's a bit of a commodity, but they were able to kind of surpass Venmo in growth, or maybe they're kind of neck and neck now because of their go-to-market strategy with talking with hip hop artists, focusing on Bitcoin, stuff like that. So I think the similarities in not like you can argue whatever buy now pay later is just a commodity product and it's easy to replicate but after pays go to market strategy is why they have been winning and growing a lot faster than others yeah i also think the after pay solution their core competency that buy now pay later just the aversion to credit 
overlaps really well with Cash App's customer base. Or tricking people that it's not credit. <laughs> I mean, it's credit. We can't deny. I mean, it's without an in- without interest. It's still credit. I mean, it's a it's interest cred- free credit. Yeah, I mean, that's it's still credit. Do you think this is worth it? And then At the I price? guess we are bitter ex shareholders now. <laughs> so I keep that. Oh, square. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think any company is worth forty two times sales. I hate to say it. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it, the acquisition makes sense. Yeah, but. When people are like, well, price doesn't matter. I mean, they're going after this huge market opportunity, blah, 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 blah. It works well. They're going to accelerate both businesses. Uh, I mean, okay, yeah, then I don't know. Price still matters in the equation. And it is it is not, I wouldn't say it's insane if they can grow 100% and get that sales multiple down really quickly. But, man, uh I mean, these margins aren't like, it's not like they're going to get to 40% free cash flow margins on this type of business. It's not like it's something like Facebook, Google, other software companies where you think they deserve a teen sales multiple because of those cash flow margins. It's going to be lower unless I'm mistaken. I would, and the I guess one of the other arguments is that because there's so many different BNPL providers that it's going to be commoditized and Afropay is going to see some fee compression. But now... I think this kind of changes that because if lead gen was good then, if that was a big enough differentiator, it's going to be even bigger now when you have oh, uh, the 70, whatever, 60, 70 million transacting customers on the cash app. Yeah, 40 million monthly. 70, I would count those are the key. 40 million monthly, 70 million, 70 million annually. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. They're going to, there's no doubt Afterpay's growth is going to accelerate. But you got to, okay, look, when you were you under. 29 billion into R&D. I have a hard time. R&D yeah. and sales and marketing. We know how good Cash App's team is that is at sales and marketing. I have a hard time believing they couldn't have built a viable competitor. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you look at where the... Okay, and I, all I can think about is stocks up 10% today. You're going to dilute with 0.375 uh, of every of every one of your shares is going to be diluted by 0.375. So 37.5... Oh, is that the right percentage? Whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ryan, whatever the transaction value... And then on top of that, I bet you, because, and I haven't looked at these in a while, but I bet you there are a lot of options sitting on in Square's balance sheet that have not been realized yet. I mean, the dilution headwinds are fat. Um, here, how I think about it, you know, what's going to drive Square's growth over the long term? And you know, I, I've only been keeping up with them lightly over the last few quarters, but... So say early last year, you could underwrite Cash App as basically the core driver of Square's long-term growth. And you had to assume, you know, maybe 50 million uh, monthly active users that were spending, uh, you know, get gross profit for customer up by 2x or something like that. And it makes a whole lot of sense from what it was in like the summer of last year. And they basically did that. And it's been very impressive. Gross profit like on the Cash App has doubled and the two-year CAGR is like 100 Twenty percent, which is insane and and really really strong. But now, with the stock up so much, you'd have to expect probably even more growth. And then now add on this afterpay. Yeah, you're adding a great asset, but now you got to expect. I mean, I don't know, a hundred million, hundred fifty million cash app customers that are spent that are worth a whole lot more than what you needed back. Uh, you know, a year ago. I mean, you need to expect cash app customers to be worth. So much more. You need to expect gross profit per customer to skyrocket over the next few years. The only thing I'd say is that, and I don't want to go on about this for too long, but 
this seems like the kind of business where an acceleration of growth drives further growth. There's a network effect, clearly. Yeah, but it's more. Uh, it's so kind it of. Be- I mean, it's kind of, kind of, kind of. I mean, the peer-to-peer part easily. Yeah, but, but that's then, they don't make any money on that. They're yeah, making money on deposits. To, making, I'm talking about user growth and then feeding it into everything else. Yeah. I get concerned, mention, though, about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's their big customer acquisition driver. But and, you also love... All right, so you're a Cash App user. You use Boost. You brag yeah. about it all the time to me. That's probably going on everywhere. Well, yeah, you know. I, I, I just don't... If they added Buy Now, Pay Later, maybe I'd use it. But I, eh, I mean, I don't know how much more... Am I gonna spend with them? I'm a pretty like I use all my like daily spending with them because they have the boost. How much more am I gonna be worth to them? Ah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, might- it seems it, they got the thing is you gotta you have to see the cash app needs to be worth so much more than what you had to make Square a good investment from here. Cash app has to be printing ten, five, seven, ten billion in cash flow. At some point, I wouldn't say that's out of the realm of possibility. I, yeah, I know, but it's just—it uh, just seems every time they do something, you're just adding more and more expectations, and yeah. that's just adding more risk to your investment. I don't know. I think it could easily work out. It'll be exciting to see. Uh, All right, from what's, the sidelines, I guess. Yeah. What's your story? Uh, okay, Robinhood's IPO. So they went public on Thursday. Stock is down about four percent since its debut. So pretty normal pricing. Nothing crazy. Uh, market cap right now is around $31 billion. But there are a few things that were interesting that happened that I am not sure can be called a full coincidence or maybe shed some light on the um, ethics of the founders. So first, or not the founders, just the company. So first, from Bloomstrand's tweet thread. So Chris Bloomstrand, who's a... Uh, we like him a lot. Yeah, I guess, yeah. He's a good follow on Twitter. Very seasoned investor. He's been around, you know, he's been doing this for a few decades. If you're on Twitter, I'd recommend following him. But he had a great thread on all the ownership and fundraising dynamics and the business dynamics of the Robinhood IPO. If you listen to our deep dive, he goes even deeper through a tweet thread from like 40 tweets. It was pretty impressive. But he calculated that the average, you know, quote, take rate on customers is 3% of their assets a year. So even if commissions are down from whatever it was, 1%, you're you're still basically paying a 3% commission fee per year. Is this better? than no. the brokerage houses of the 80s. Uh, no, well, maybe, maybe the 80s, maybe. Uh, but I weren't they for, for, like uh, one for, or two? It wasn't like one or two percent. Uh, yeah, I mean it was a little lower, but you could they could really gouge them. Oh no, it was fi- excuse me, it wasn't. It was fixed. It was fixed. So if you were small, you got totally screwed with like oh. I forget the exact number, but yeah, it, it's worse for the small guy, but. Okay, this type of stuff, you know, you can benefit when. You're an individual, and you're a buy and hold, and you don't actually do anything. But if you're not, it seems like on average, people are getting screwed over here. Uh, but we've been over that before. If you want to hear about how all the business works, I'd recommend listening to our not-so-deep dive on them. But another interesting note is that the CLO, which is Chief Legal Officer of Robinhood, Dan Gallagher, joined in May 2020 and has shares given to him that will be valued at, I think, $100 million right now. I got this from... An article. So if it's different than what the SEC filing says, apologies. But that's a ballpark. You got a lot of money for joining 
about a year ago. He also used to work at the SEC. Should that, I feel like that should be not legal, right? There needs to be a grace period, right? This is how the, we've watched Billions. You start at the SEC (laughs) so that you can get a good- Billions is very real. A good attorney spot at a big financial house. Or it reminds me of the but scene in the Big Short when the the girls like who uh, uh, it was his cousin, one of the people's cousins or, or friend, was, was like banking and she's like I work at the show. yeah she's like they see we don't do anything anymore and she's like oh I gotta talk to him and he, she's like he's a Goldman you know I gotta yeah. get in it uh I mean yeah that presents some problems obviously because also SEC you don't want to prosecute someone you might work for in the future so exactly there's or, certainly some i know it makes no sense there it makes no sense here's here's also something that was a bit concerning to me so Robinhood allotted shares to their customers which is kind of you know cool see how that happens but they were rest- are restricting users from future ipo allotments if they sell their Robinhood shares before a certain time period i think it's like three six months i wonder if it coincides with the lockup period but during the IPO, CEO Vlad Tenev dumped $275 million worth of stock. So yeah. I just see that and I'm like, what are we uh, what are we selling to people here? It is the most, we've been over it. We've probably belabored this point, but we think the entire business is low than hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like... An analogy is like, uh, nah, I was going to analogize it, or make an yeah. analogy to Purdue Pharma, but I think that's a, that'd be a bit strong. Uh, okay, here's a question. Robinhood stock below or above $40 a share five years from now? Well, yeah. it's not as addictive as it is. It's not recurring revenue. Like, what if we hit a peak trading activity this year? Yeah. Like, there's a very real world in which revenue declines <laughs> next year. If I could tell you that per I could tell you what the maybe if I, I got access to future trading volume, but that's an unknown. So. I've been thinking about that a lot. They went public at the most opportune time oh, after yeah. the GameStop craze. Oh yeah, and they're gonna print some and, real nice because of the Dogecoin in Q two, but that's dead. I mean, that's that's. I mean, Dogecoin is like what I happens. Mean, it's when, terrible, but you know, the snowball gets big enough that these the the incremental demand from Robinhood traders doesn't move prices enough that it bores people and they stop yeah i mean it's it's hinging on sentiment and the i am interested in knowing how these insiders have acted i am very interested to see what happens from now into the lockup period yeah. or after the lockup period um all right that's all i got for that on right. to track Robinhood, but <laughs> my next my next story is down goes Trevor Milton. So last week, the SEC charged Trevor Milton with disseminating false and misleading information, typically by speaking directly to investors through social media. So quote from the SEC press release, it says, Milton allegedly used his extensive media platform to repeatedly mislead investors about, among other things, Nikola's technological advancements, products, in-house production capabilities, and commercial achievements. The complaint further alleges that Milton ultimately reaped tens of millions of dollars in personal benefits as a result of his misconduct. Conduct. The uh, they also, I guess, like all the SEC staff members got Twitter accounts this week. Not sure. That's oh, good. That's good. I but mean, they're, and they, they, they're they gonna they have pretended to mute. that they weren't just eavesdropping. Well, before I mean, <laughs> they were like, they, "Hey, they, we're new. Yeah, check yeah. us out." 
I mean, they've <laughs> clearly been on before. They, I guess. But there was a, the SEC released a video on Twitter, and it was the SEC enforcement officer. Uh, I might be mess, messing this name up. Gerber Gruwal. Uh, and he was talking, I guess, at like a press conference, and he was explaining the charges. And he said, this case also demonstrates that corporate officers cannot say whatever they want on social media without regard for the federal securities laws. Now, it sounds uh, a bit like this is a step in the right direction. Yeah. We'll, talk well, about that, well, yeah. Why aren't certain other executives? Milt, what's going on? Milton pleaded know. not guilty, and he was freed on a $100 million bond secured against two of his properties in Utah. Must be some damn nice properties. I mean, he's worth a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, and, okay, a lot of videos resurfaced, resurfaced of Milton talking to, on Instagram Live, of him like, I can't wait till five years from now. I think he bet them, like bet a bunch of short sellers, and now his social medias are gone. Hey, but, I'll brag. We, we called it from the beginning. So uh, I, w- I wouldn't say it was a very tough call or a tough bet to make, but yeah, it felt fraudy. Hey, everyone was hyping him up last summer or last May and June. Well, yeah, I don't in, know. in his plea, Milton's legal team stated, every executive in America should be horrified. Trevor Milton is an <laughs> entrepreneur who had a long-term vision of helping the environment by cutting carbon emissions in the trucking industry. So this is not securities manipulation if he's pleading to the ESG crowd. <laughs> well, it's long-term vision. I mean, it's ESG if your stock goes up. Uh, it's riches now, environmental consciousness in 40 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, yeah. I mean, if you have a long-term vision, you can commit fraud. I would just use this. If you're an investor in a company, look at this and say, it was is all there the, anything yeah. similar? And I would read the WeWork book. I, I can't wait to read that because that's going to help a lot of lessons in identifying not necessarily like a Nicoletta short or anything like that, but like, is there any risks of fraud within companies I own? Because you can, Buffett talked about this a lot. I think they ask like once or twice that they've asked at all of the annual meetings throughout the years. They're like, well, you know, they ask him like, oh, how do you identify these fraudsters? Or, you know, would you ever short a company that's committing fraud? And he's like, well, we don't, we don't short. It's not, you know, we can't do it. We're too big. It's not in our playbook. But He's like, we pretty easily had a huge success rate in identifying these fraudsters because they have the same telltale signs. So yeah. I'd use this as a lesson of, of going forward, like finding, I'm not going to name any names, but. These yeah. all had the blatant red flags. The worst part about this, Nikola's market cap is still $4.4 billion. It's because there's just no. How's it not zero? It's just because there's no. Uh, is that it, how much it's cash like, they have on the balance sheet or something? No, you got to look at their holders. Someone, someone put it up. I mean, it's just like passive holders. I mean, there's just nothing going on. It's it's weird. It's just kind of sitting there and no one's doing anything. I'll I have a question, what, though. Are you worried that they were using podcast transcripts uh, and, I guess, podcasts themselves as evidence? That, you know, I was like, ooh, <laughs> all right. Maybe. I think it has more to do with the Instagram live video of him rolling a truck down a hill. Well, they had, like, four podcast interviews in their, in their deposition, so. Uh, this, I, I know this was a pretty obvious case but does this make you for me it made me a little bit proud of the sec for the first time in a while because it felt like they were you know finally yeah. prosecuting someone for wrongdoing this new team's been here for what a few months yeah um the old team i mean i forget the old team the head of the is the old guy uh, i forget his name Gary. but 
No, no, Gensler's the guy there now. But whoever the old guy was, I investigate him. Because it was clear and he was just ignoring everything. I, I want to know why. Why was he ignoring everything? Does this give you a little more optimism about the SEC moving forward? That maybe... Yeah, it's good. Unethical behavior won't be tolerated. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I mean, I only I, feel like the SEC, I sound like a tattletale. No, but I, come <laughs> on. It's like I can figure it out. Yeah, we and can, I'm not good at this. Yeah, we can all figure it out. I mean, I tweet that thing, uh, the the meme that floats around of you know the the LeBron James and J.R. Smith, LeBron James throwing his hands up, yelling is everyone, and then J.R. Smith is the SEC. It's like. Do something. They finally did something. I hope it's a step in the right direction because the reason the S- like the SEC has been a great force throughout the the cent- the last well, it's not a century yet. Basically, a century of keeping financial markets as cl- cleaner because before the SEC in the what's um, the Roaring Twenties, the Panic in 1907, stuff along there. I mean, it was. Just what, the criminal side, the sidewalk brokerage, yeah, or whatever. The, the curb markets, all that stuff you was didn't need pure criminality. Financial documents, yeah. I mean, why? Why would just look at the history of that stuff? And before the SEC, it was just it was so much crime. And to have them here and actually acting correctly, I mean, it's great. People don't get screwed. Like people are losing billions. And Adam Newman, Trevor Milton, maybe Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know if she kept any of her money are worth $100 million or more. I mean, that, that's criminal. What's your last story here? Okay, let's wrap things up with a very funny story. Now, if you're listening and you are a uh, Elon Musk fan, which I know a lot of people are, you it's might have seen that probably the time he, to sign off. <laughs> well, it's, it's just a funny story either way. I don't know how it plays off, but he denied that this happened. Um, I have no idea whether it's true or not. It's in a book, so I think they probably sourced it fairly well. They would have had to, but... I'm just going to read it from a Bloomberg source going across someone's ticker. Uh, Elon Musk once demanded to be made the CEO of Apple during discussions of a potential Tesla buyout, according to a new book. The surprising 2016 conversation is one of the details revealed in the upcoming book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk in the Bed of the Century by Wall Street Journal reporter Tim Higgins. Apple CEO Tim Cook had called Musk to propose acquiring the electric car maker, which was struggling financially ahead of the unveiling of the Model 3. So this is 2016, could have acquired him for a few tens of billions probably, maybe a little higher. Um, makes, uh, well, uh, who knows, I guess it I makes think Apple was just at about a trillion. Uh, they would have been under, but they would have had plenty of cash to do it. And, and yeah. I, I, this was the time when their stock was kind of depressed on an earnings multiple basis. Um, so he called Musk to propose a deal. Musk expressed his interest in the idea, but had one condition, telling Cook, quote, I'm CEO. Cook at first thought Musk meant that he wanted to remain CEO of Tesla after the merger and said he was not opposed to the idea. I can see that going down. He's like, yeah, you can still run Tesla. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's I, fine. We'll think about it, yeah. Yeah, sure. he's like, uh, you know, no more, I mean, we got rules here. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's Apple. It's a real company. Uh, all right, then he said, but when Musk clarified that he expected to take Cook's job as Apple CEO, Cook responded, quote, F you, and hung up according to the new book. What? <laughs> I mean, that's... Uh, I've said it before. I cannot wait for either the HBO documentary on Tesla, however it ends up, if they run the Good, world. or bad. They, It's going to be a great documentary. Or a movie. 
like a like a biopic type thing, the drama is is amazing because everything that Musk seems to do, he takes it very personally and gets emotional. And that scene itself would just be hilarious. I mean, who has the audacity to ask for bold? But then again, he's a bold guy. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm gonna. You, you, you took this company to be the largest in the world. You generated the most probably earnings in the history of the world. Maybe Microsoft. I don't know. But you know, I I don't know if you guys are doing it right. I, I want that job. Yeah, I don't. I mean, what a it's story! Very though. bold, uh, especially over the phone. And this, <laughs> it'd be one thing if his. Like, Tesla wasn't doing too hot at the time. Yeah, they're still... I mean, it nowadays, was, you think... I mean, the market kept uh, 10 that's times some, less. That's some hefty demands. <laughs> I know. It's, it would have been like... A, in his position. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you're acquiring basically a company at the time that's hemorrhaging money. So they would be a negative to Apple's... I mean, it would be slight because Apple generates tens of billions in cash here and Tesla was burning a few billion. But, I mean, you're taking on a distressed asset at that point. Man, <laughs> I mean, what there? There's a world though where they buy them. Which think of you know, think about that. Buffett. This is the same time that Buffett's loading up on Apple. I think could have been a bit before. That that's a bit. You know what happens if Tim Cook buys Tesla for fifty billion? He could have bought back Apple's own stock. What you know, Buffett could have been the largest share. I mean, that's just an interesting relationship. Buffett, Tim Cook, Berkshire Hathaway, Elon Musk. Yeah, that would have been interesting dynamics so many headlines so many clickbait headlines i think that's gonna do it unless you have anything else no that's it all right thanks again to eric for coming on the show thank you for listening if you stayed all the way through uh this is a good time to probably announce that we are changing up the show format so uh, i guess we can kind of try to explain it so we're going to do instead of three shows a week it's going to be two shows a week we're going to have uh, not so deep dive the ones that we typically have with Ian and Brad if you listen to those same show format we're gonna have thi- those on Tuesdays once a week once a twice. week so they'll alternate each week and then on Thursdays we're gonna have an interview kind of like how we do it now but it's gonna be more company specific we're hoping to focus on finding experts on stocks yeah. someone who's pitching a stock it could be a short could be a long most likely it's a long but so hope- ours we we've been called since since we used to call it a deep dive, people used to complain that it wasn't a deep dive. It was kind of surface level. These will be deep dives, hopefully with an expert on the company. Ours will be us turning over a rock, and we'll call those the not-so-deep dives. Yeah, twice a week. Um, or sorry, not-so-deep dive once a week on Tuesday, hopefully starting next week from today yeah. when you're listening to this. Thursday, we have an interview focused on – but the thing is we hope – you know. It's going to be focused on one stock. We've done that before, and usually it's like with two or three stocks, but we believe if we narrow it down to just one company, more people will be excited to listen, and you can give basically a 45-minute you know, platform or forum for someone that knows a stock well to talk about it, and hopefully people can learn by listening. All right. That's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have uh, positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.